Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Clement. This show is brought to you by our good friends at Gainesway. From top international bloodlines to rising stars on American soil, Gainesway has put together a stallion roster that is not only primed for future success, but is currently making its mark on the track, led by Cara Conti's undefeated rising star, Spenderella. Make sure you check out their entire roster for 2022 and and see for yourself the power, passion, and performance of Gainesway. Big thanks to our friends at Gainesway for their support as have a fun show coming up today. A couple of owners in the spotlight and talking about different sides of the industry once again, getting into that world of breeding from different levels of ownership over the years too. Of course, it's an exciting time as I record this. We are just under two weeks away from the Run for the Roses, the Kentucky Derby. That's the big focus of a lot of people in the industry at this time, and rightfully so. It is the marquee race of our sport, but we just wrapped up the OBS two-year-old sale. We have Keeneland sale coming up the end of April. And then, of course, in May, we'll have some more two-year-old sales and a lot more going on as well, um, not to mention the other races around Triple Crown time as things are really heating up in the world of horse racing right now. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. As always, I'm glad to have you here for another episode of In the Ring. Very proud to welcome in who, someone who has a, a great history in the game of horse racing, but also such a true passion for the game and has served in a variety of roles in the industry. Owner Steve Dunker joins me now. Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm really excited to chat with you and you have a very, very exciting horse in training right now. Well, thank you, Keisha. It's, it's great to be asked and it's great to be on uh, the podcast and Yes, we do. It's uh, these these are the types of horses that keep you going through some of the leaner times. So uh, Slipstream has got all all our ownership group in a in a very good mood. We saw Slipstream was such an exciting win at Keeneland at the start of the meet, and this was a horse that was really exciting as a two year old as well. Brought you to the Breeders' Cup, and as you said, these types of horses that bring you to these types of races. This is what keeps you coming back. How special! are those types of events with your partnership group? Well, that, that's, that's a great question because I've owned horses since I was 17. And mm. what I found is that you have uh, four times as much fun for one fourth the money when you have a partnership. So uh, this has been a great group. Kevin Warsh, uh, who went to the race on uh, Sunday, mm. week ago Sunday, uh, is probably the most active of the two. But George Walker and George Loning, uh, the other two owners, are passionate about the sport. They're just a little busier, so they don't make it in person as much. But to your point, uh, having people to share both the ups and the downs with really, really is important. Won the grade three futurity at Belmont as a two-year-old, just coming off of that stakes win at Keeneland um, last week, as you mentioned, in the Palisade Stakes. To be successful in those types of races, what is that feeling like as an owner to see your silks cross the wire first? It, that, that moment is, is pure ecstasy. But I will say that a lot of the fun comes from uh, the thinking about the race to, to, that, that's next and mm -hmm. just the... Um, just, you know, the, the past performances come out, the entries come out, you know, strategizing and the expectation that you're going to run uh, is a big part of it also. And one of the things that 
you know, the Clement stable, Christoph and, and Miguel do better than anyone else that's ever trained uh, for me is, is owner communication. You know, when your horses are working out, you know what's going on. They're just great at that. And that really adds to the anticipation and the expectational fun. Christoph and Miguel are, of course, people that I know quite well, uh, but getting a chance to see them work is really amazing because you, you mentioned it's not just about the race. Of course, that's a huge piece of it, but it really is about the whole experience from start to finish, the training, the preparation, everything that goes into it. And that's, I think, a huge part of owning a racehorse. I mean, we're right in the middle of that now. There's some yeah. chance that Slipstream uh, goes to Royal Ascot to run in the Commonwealth Cup. And... I can tell you that we, you know, I think about that many times a day and it's not until middle of June and my partnership group's the same. So, uh, you know, we're going to have almost two months, you know, more than two months of excitement, getting ready, get, getting ready to run in that race. And it was the same with the Palisades and the Breeders' Cup last year came a little quickly after the mm -hmm. futurity, but, you know, we had a lot of fun in the run up to the Breeders' Cup. So, um, yeah, it, that that part of it is is not to be underappreciated. And you've had big horses before. You had a very very nice horse named Black Type. Ran fourth in the Belmont with Governor Malibu. The partnership as well. Uh, of course, there's big wins and and big races like that. But what is it that keeps you coming back for the day to day as far as the ownership side of things? I, I, th I think it's all of the uh, elements that we've been talking about. I I it, you know we have two year olds now. And they're not really getting very close to running, but I enjoy getting reports on two-year-olds. We breed, uh, I've bred over the years, several horses, and we have two mares now. I, I enjoy thinking about the matings. I mean, the whole process can bring consumption to an owner. Um, I, th I think to the, one of the points you're making is that it's great to win races, but if that was the only fun that you had or, or most of the fun that you had, it would not sustain at least me through the times that are a little a little tougher. Mm -hmm. um, you can go a long time uh, between races like the Futurity, the Palisades, the Breeders' Cup, it, it, unless you have huge numbers, which we really don't. Right. As you mentioned, not many horses in training in your silks each year. How do you come about adding horses to your stable, whether it's through the sales, you mentioned your involvement in breeding. What's your process like? Our process is uh, that every year, and it changes, it changes more based on the desire of the ownership group um, than it does any deep market analysis. I'd like to say that we have a whole, uh, you know, Wall Street, we're all in some way, uh, you know, Wall Street or some process that uh, uses data to give us an edge, but it, but it really isn't that for us. Um, mm -hmm. It goes, it, it, it goes from, um, you know, the fact that we, one of the, one of the tenets is that we do want to have some New York breads. We, we race in New York and, you know, kind of the bedrock is having two or three New York breads every year, whether it's breeding or it's going to the New York bread sale. Uh, and then after that, we are looking to find, you know, racy runner types, probably not, um, you know, half a million dollars and under. We've had some success having Kristoff source horses from overseas. So it's an eclectic, it's an eclectic approach to ownership to say the least. And coming up this week, for instance, you have a horse named Swashbuckle who is a New York bred, who is also bred by Jumpsucker. 
what about that mating process and and being part of it from the very beginning it has to be incredibly fulfilling seeing a horse that you also had a hand in breeding make the racetrack and have some success there, there's no doubt about it and i you know if my partners were talking i think they would say that that is you know by 50 percent more impactful for their happiness and their fun and racing than the outcome um so uh, that mating, we got a little bit lucky with the quality road when, mm -hmm. I, you know, his fee w was, I think, a third of what it is now. Um, so, you know, there's some, there's some luck in all of this, too. We, I'd love to say, oh, well, we had, a, once again, an algorithm that told us quality road was going to get hot, but we didn't. So, um, you know, what we do is we get a short list from Christophe um, and a, a friend of mine who's been in the a bloodstock business for 40 years, Alan Portucci, and then we kick it around between us and, and, and then from that, a mating, a mating cup. So, um, but it, it, it is, it is incredibly fulfilling to see one that you bred, uh, uh, you know, win a race or come to the racetrack. And that's why you do see quite a few people that will buy a horse, you know, before the Derby or before a specific big race. I'm not sure that would ever be something we would find um, that impactful. I, right. I think I think the longer you're involved with the horse, the more it means to you when they do well. What are some of the big lessons that you've learned in breeding over the years? Because it certainly is a humbling piece of the game. It's funny, as you were asking that question, the word that went through my head was humble, humbling. <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's amazing amazing how many things can go wrong. Yeah. And for people that have not been around, you can explain that to them, but they don't, they, they, until you live through it, it's, it's hard to, to understand. And uh, you can look at all the statistics that you want, but to get a healthy foal on the ground, standing and nursing that goes forward, it's not trivial. And that's just the beginning. That's, that's the, that's the price of poker. So, uh, I think I, I, you know, the, the oldest saying, I think maybe I heard it when I was five, is breed to the best and hope for the best. And I think that still stands. It's, there's no, there's no magic there. So uh, pick a good mating, cross your fingers, and uh, <laughs> three years later, hopefully you have a two-year-old running at Saratoga. The dream, right? Exactly. Uh, are there particular maybe stallions or particular crosses or types of matings that really excite you or that you, you feel like you've had a lot of success with over the years? So I used to spend a lot more time with that, uh, mm -hmm. especially when I was when I was a sole owner, when I owned horses by myself. And what I found is that me specifically, that that is out of my circle of competence. Mm -hmm. uh, I. I found myself having opinions that were based on liking a particular horse that I saw run by a particular stallion. And that is clearly not the way to form an opinion. So I leave that to people that do it for a living. Uh, you know, one, one thing that I have found in racing is that you, you really do have to know what you know and what you don't know. And even though I've owned horses for 46 years, there's, there's a lot of it I still don't know, and I leave that to others.
I had read that you owned your first horse when you were in high school, that you and a few friends were able to purchase a horse. Take me back to the beginning and, and how that all came about. Yeah, well, that, that, was, that was a great, a great time. Uh, my best friend and I started a, a business tarring driveways in St. Louis. And you can make a lot of money if you're willing to tar driveways in the St. Louis uh, sun. <laughs> so we made enough money to buy a racehorse. We got two of our buddies involved. We bought a horse that had been running on the Kentucky circuit and brought it up to Fairmont Park Racetrack. We were seniors in high school and uh, she won her first race. And that might've been the most expensive $3,200 purse <laughs> to win in the history of racing because that got, that got it all started. But it was, was really a thrill. And uh, <laughs> Boy, it, it, it's a long time ago, but it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem so long ago. I know, of course, you're involved in the owning and breeding sides of things, but I know you also enjoy the handicapping piece of racing too. What is it about that? And, and in your opinion, with the so many different facets of the game, what is it that's so appealing at the end of the day? I, I, I think the ability to solve a puzzle and have a financial outcome in solving that puzzle and knowing what the outcome is in a matter of minutes is, is what is, is, is so enticing to me. If you're on Wall Street, which like I said, all of our partner group has been or is, right. you might buy a stock or, or a bond and wait six months, a year, two years to see if you're right. Racing is instantaneous. And, uh, the, and it is a puzzle and you can be better than the next person at solving that puzzle. And, um, you know, paramutual is great. When you go to a casino, you go to the craps table, you can be, I can teach you to be the best craps player in the world in 10 minutes, mm -hmm. but you're never going to have an edge. If you're the best handicapper, one of the best handicappers, you do have an edge. So all of that rolled up is, is why I love, I love handicapping. Yeah. And, you know, you get to do it with your friends too. You're sitting in the box. Everybody's got a different opinion. There's a lot of camaraderie, and uh, and then the outcome happens. So uh, I don't think I don't think I'll ever not love handicapping. Do you? And I I love what you said because for me it's the puzzle that is so much fun as far as and and so satisfying when you're right as well. Do you think that that handicapping love and passion carries over into being an owner and? kind of influences some of those decisions as well? It's, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate handicapping. And it's not handicapping because the puzzle's different, but it's the ultimate experience for a handicapper. Yeah. That's why you see so many people with the partnership model reaching out to be in the game because they've sat there and they've, you know, tried to solve this puzzle and they've gotten a charge from that. And the charge you get from owning one is multiple of what you get from handicapping. So there's no doubt that it carries over. There's no doubt that the thrill carries over. And uh, you know, people ask me, when, when people ask me how the horses are, you always tell them the story about what great win you had, or you know, uh, the, you know, the story about us buying in, in high school or Bates Motel or any of those things. But in general, you're paying a lot of money to have fun. So uh, there's, there's definitely an aspect of handicapping and owning the horses. Bates Motel is also a great story. How did you come upon that horse? 
So when I was at, in college at Duke, uh, I had a fraternity brother that I played backgammon with. And uh, I won a significant amount of money from him, a couple thousand dollars, and he couldn't pay. But when he went home for Christmas, his parents gave him 10% of a, of a fold. And he came back to school and he said, look, I can't pay you the money, but would you take the 10, this 10% of this racehorse, uh, Sir Ivor out of Sunday Purchase? And at that point, it was a yearling, I believe. So I called my same friend up that we own the horses together with and I owned together in uh, high school. And he, he sent me $1,000 and we went halves and that horse ended up being Bates Motel. It's amazing how you can come upon owning a racehorse, isn't it? It, it, it really, it really is. And uh, somebody once said, "Well, God, you must be an awfully good backgammon player." And I said, <laughs> "Not really, just better than the guy I was playing." So, uh, you, you know, it, it was serendipitous that he had an asset that actually turned out to being a rate, you know, was a racehorse. Perfect for you as well. I love that story. You've also had a lot of involvement on various boards throughout the industry, involvement with the Jockey Club and particularly with the New York Racing Association. Will you tell me a little bit about some of the hats that you've worn in those roles, Stephen, and some of the things that you feel quite passionately about the game and things that you really think that we should be working on and moving towards? Sure. Uh, I joined the Naira board. I can't remember exactly when, but maybe 99 or 2000. Mm -hmm. And I believe was 2003 when myself and Peter Karchis were asked to be chairman, co-chairman of the board. Um, and Peter passed away in, in uh, I believe, 06. But at any rate, I was chairman of the board of Naira for 11 years. I've been on the jockey, in, member of the jockey club since I think 1999 or 2000 also. Um, along the way, I was uh, chairman of the Graded Stakes Committee for TOBA. Uh, right now, I'm a steward of the Jockey Club. So those are some of the hats that I've worn. And what, what you find is that um, there, the, the business side to horse racing is e extremely complicated mm -hmm. and uh, probably underappreciated by most people that go that go to the racetrack or even work at the racetrack. And that the, uh, one of the, the, main, the main things in New York, at least, is just how political running a racetrack is. Mm -hmm. And how, uh, you know, while there might be business decisions that people feel are obvious, there's a political side to it that makes some of those, uh, you know, decisions that may be considered obvious moot. Uh, having said that, I, I really, I think there's a great, there, there's been a great uh, resurgence at Naira, especially with David O'Rourke as our, our CEO, in terms of the ability to maintain a business model that's different than it has been in the past. So um, that, that really gives me a lot of confidence going forward in Naira. I realize that was a a long meandering answer, yeah. but it's a complex topic. So uh, there you go. It is indeed. And I, I like what you said that it, it's a piece of it, I think, that maybe isn't really covered or acknowledged much in the greater scheme of horse racing. People love coming to the racetrack, working in a various capacity at the racetrack as well. But 
the the business side of things is so essential for the future and for the the health of the game, so to speak. It really it really is, and uh, you know, having two racetracks eight miles apart mm-hmm. and paying for the upkeep on two racetracks historically comes from a time long ago where you would go from one track to the next and it was so profitable. It didn't matter that you had this monstrous fixed cost of two huge racetracks so close to each other. You saw it in Chicago, obviously you saw it in Los Angeles. All those, all those have shut down. There, you can't compete with yourself with a high fixed cost. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone understands that, but it still is going on in, in some places and obviously it's going on in New York with, with Aqueduct and, and Belmont. Um, so that's just one, one kind of top level uh, example. Another super important example that I think people are beginning to understand at a, at a more broad-based level is the difference between uh, ADWs right. and how some ADWs like Naira Betts give 6% to purses and some ADWs give a percent or 2% to purses and how big a deal that is at the end of the day to the lifeblood of the sport, which is purses for owners and purses that attract full fields for betters. Mm-hmm. So once again, that's that in and of itself is probably an hour discussion, but um, you know, those are, those are two of the, the most important kind of underappreciated parts of running a racetrack. Are there certain things that you would like to see in the future or, or maybe on the other side of the coin, something that you're very proud of in the strides that we've made in the game on that front? Well, I, I think, I think, you know, I'll point again to Naira Betts. I think David mm-hmm. has been just incredibly thoughtful about and Tony, Tony Oliveto have been incredible. I should have mentioned Tony in the first instance, that was a mistake, but in the, you know, in, in the way that they've run, um, you know, Naira Betts and, and how that's grown and how important that is, not just to Naira. I think it's more important to the horseman than it is to the corporate entity that is Naira. Right. So I would point to that to something that, you know, Naira should be proud of. And uh, I mean, this goes back a long ways, but there was a time when Naira was in a position not to run racing in New York and the team that was able to retain the franchise against a lot of uh, outside opposition and very strong opposition, uh, I remain proud of that. Well, you have an exciting horse right now in Slipstream, potentially taking you to Royal Ascot. Of course, those are huge races coming up and hopefully a huge year with that horse and many others. But is there something in particular that you'd love to have the experience of within ownership? Uh, Of course, I know a lot of people always say the Kentucky Derby. Is that a big thing for you that you'd love to accomplish and check off the list? You know, it is. And I'm a New York owner at heart. And, uh, you know, I love the big New York races. We've had, we've been lucky enough to have a runner in the Travers. I've been lucky enough as as a sole owner to win graded, you know, good graded stakes in New York. I'd love to have a runner in the Derby. Obviously, everybody wants to, to win the Derby. I'd like to have just a runner in the Derby. I'd like to experience that lead up 
um, you see people making the walk and it's just, it's just amazing. And I, I would just love, I would love to do that. And I'd love to do it with this partnership group and this training team. So Hope Springs Eternal, it's only been 46 years without a derby horse, but uh, you know, there's always next year. There certainly is. I hope we get to experience that. And, and I hope that this year you have a Royal Ascot winner as well. Uh, Steve Dunker, can't say thank you enough for taking the time. And it was really a pleasure to get a chance to pick your brain a little bit. Thank you, Acacia. This was great. I, I really appreciate being asked and spending some time with you. I have a special guest coming up next and of course one that has a great story as far as getting involved in the sport of horse racing and then moving into the breeding side of things as well but also a dear friend and uh, somebody if you've ever met him at the racetrack you know his energy is just infectious and his love for the game and, and truly his support of the horses as well. Sal Spadali joins me now. Sal so happy to have you on. And thank you, my pleasure. And before we get started, congratulations on your new endeavor uh, with, with New York. So I know you'd be missed in South Florida, but New York's glad to have you. Thank you, Sal. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's been fun and exciting on to this new chapter. And speaking of new chapters for you, you have um, really taken quite a journey in the sport of horse racing and i want to go back to the beginning because i know that you started out owning horses in partnership and you have a great story though as to how you first got involved in horse racing will you tell us a little bit about that and about the very beginning sure my dad was a assistant trainer for lucian fontaine back in the trotter days and i must have been six seven eight years old and he used to take me up there and uh, I got to see the horses firsthand and see how hard, you know, that they worked to keep, you know, the equine athletes you know, at the top of their game. And, and my dad always loved it. But unfortunately, my mom said to him, you know, you're not making enough money doing this. It's time to get a real job. <laughs> so my dad, unfortunately, had to become a carpenter. And thank God he did that because he was able to provide a nice life for our family. And we'll fast forward this till 2019. And my dad Unfortunately, fell, hit his head. I flew down to Florida to see him, and he said, you know, before I go, you have to buy horses in our name so I could have something to watch from up there when I'm gone. And I said, Dad, trust me, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be fine. And, and uh, the good Lord took him the next day. Wow. So uh, I felt very obligated, Marianne and I, to, to do something in his name and, and didn't know how to get started with all this. And, and uh, my dad had mentioned to me about partnerships and to get involved with the game for you know small investment, but to get your feet wet. And I was blessed to have met uh, Terry Finley and uh, Tom Bellhouse at West Point and uh, put some money there and, and had a couple of horses through partnerships. And, and it was a lot of fun to be part of a much bigger team for a smaller investment, but I only owned 5% or 10%. And yeah, the thrill was great, but it, I didn't feel like they were my horses. And I asked Tom, where do I go from here to get involved in the game on my own? And Tom recommended Danny Gargan to me. And from there, Danny and I started a relationship. And uh, most of my horses in New York are with Danny and living in Pennsylvania. I found Kate Damasi and her husband, Greg, and have horses down here with them. And that was my foray into the business. And, and then one horse, two horses, three horses took me into 25 horses and and you get to meet so many nice people, you included and Miguel included and, and, and finding partnerships and people that have the same love of the animal and the same interest was, was really a blessing. And 
And I, I really look forward to you know the next part of our, our chapter. And that's like building a legacy for my family because my kids really love it too. And I'm just blessed that you know my dad's vision and I was able to to you know let his dream come true. And hopefully he is watching up there and, and having a great time. I loved what you said, one turned into 25. I always say horses, they're like potato chips, right? You can't have just one. And uh, I I mean, did you ever expect that you would, A, have the success that you've had and B, that it would turn into such a passion of yours? The passion, yes. The success, no. Uh, The game is a very humbling game, that much we could say. Uh, My first year in the business ruined me, and we'll talk about Hug later, but he ruined me in the sense that my second horse I ever claimed on my own turned out to be a horse that that had my heart. And uh, every time I went to see him and every time I would look at him, it was just just the falling in love with him, regardless of how he ran. It was just his personality. And year one was fantastic. And it, again, beyond my wildest expectations. The second year doing it, you know, horses get hurt, things happen. And as I said, the game can really humble you, or really can. But if your heart's in the right place and knowing that you have to put the horse first, no matter what, it keeps you going. So this is a, thank God I love roller coasters. This, is a ro- <laughs> this game is a roller coaster. You got the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And uh, just been really blessed to have the ability to, uh, to really meet a lot of nice people along this journey. And uh, it's, it's been unbelievable. It's an unbelievable ride. I think in doing this show, one of the themes that I've heard from a lot of people is that love of partnerships and sharing all of that excitement and the, the ups and the downs, sharing the risks as well with some other people. Tell me a little bit about that. Of course, you started in the syndicate format, but then owning horses on your own and pairing up with other individuals really allows you to kind of have a lot more horses too. And, and it's more fun to share that with others. True. Uh, my best friend in the game now is Jason Provenzano from Flying P. I got to meet Jay two years ago down in Florida, and then we met uh, with our spouses up in Gulfstream. And finding out that we had so many similarities from ethnicity, both being from Italian families and the closeness of family. And, and we just really hit it off. And, and Jay had so much more experience than I did. And, and he took me on like a brother. And he's still a brother today. It's someone I can bounce things off of. The most important thing I could say, Acacia, about partners, go with the partner who tells you the truth. Jay mm-hmm. and I have never lied to each other. We've been straight with each other. Um, we don't need to go around in circles to get to the to the truth. And that's a great thing. And then, and, and then getting to meet Randy Hill, another character, a tremendous mm-hmm. person, and his family, and Dean Reeves, who we've had horses with, and here uh, with Kate in Pennsylvania with Pewter. It just brings a lot more fun. Yes, the risk is, you know, uh, spread out amongst us and so are the rewards, but it really lets you, you know, get involved with more horses and get more involved in in looking for that next horse, which we're all looking for the next fast horse out there. And, And partnerships, I think, are a way to go for a lot of people. It definitely gets you into the game, get involved with good people, um, have fun with it. You know, someone once told me that that this industry turns billionaires into millionaires. And and that's very true, too, because the expenses can be, you know, uh, sometimes overwhelming. And it's just part of what the game is. But if you really enjoy this experience, there's nothing like being in the winner's circle, whether it's a 5000 claimer 
or a grade one snake sauce. It's, it's about the love of the game. And, and I've never lost that passion, never lost that love for the game. And it's something that, you know, you hope people in the industry feel the same way about it and just don't treat this damn thing as a business, but it's really about the love of an animal and, and being able to, to succeed, you know, in, in a business that's very difficult to succeed in. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you've learned along the way, as far as things that you look for in claiming horses and in buying horses at sales as well, whether that's in partnerships or or adding horses to run in your own colors. Well, I'm a big believer in letting the experts do their job. Mm -hmm. I would never profess to know what a good horse looks like. Couldn't tell. Um, basically, you have to rely on your trainers and your bloodstock agents and, and your partners to do that. And I stay away from it as much as possible because I don't know much about it. I have to trust the people I'm with. As I said, I could look at a horse and couldn't tell you a good horse from one who's not good. Uh, I fall in love with everyone that I have. So I let I let the experts get involved in that part of the game, um, you know, and hopefully, you know, you could look at breeding and you could look at workouts and you could look at how fast they're going into sales and all of that doesn't tell me anything. The one thing that you can never tell about a horse, whether they're small, whether they're big, whether they're fast, you can't tell the size of their heart. And I'd love to find a horse with heart over a horse that's fast. Mm -hmm. Give me a horse that has heart. And I'll take that horse every day of the week, but I'll never profess to be the person who knows what to do. I'll just follow the lead. And if, you know, they've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So I've been very lucky to be with people who've been in the business for a long time. You mentioned and alluded to it a little bit that very early on you had some success with claiming and that did include a great stakes winner in Venezuela and hug a horse I know that was really special to your family and is now standing as a stallion. Tell me a little bit about the journey with him. Oh, it's been unbelievable. Uh, as I said, we he was the second horse that we ever claimed on my own work. You know, again, give Danny and his team all the credit. We claimed him for 40,000 in Gulfstream. Uh, he actually ran seven to eight times for me he won six races three graded stakes in a row uh sunshine preview sunshine millions canadian turf his career was was going through the roof and as i said for him i go and see him almost every day because in florida i live pretty close to palmettos and and he's as i said to you the first time that you interviewed me about it he's <laughs> a him he'll smile at you he'll stick his tongue out at you he'll he'll do all the things that a you know that a puppy would do Yet you put the saddle at him and you get him on the racetrack and he was all business. And just that relationship with him, he was my first love in this game. And he hooked me, hook, line, and sinker. And he's a big 17 hands, beautiful gray. And, you know, I just wished all the best for him. And, and our journey, and you talk about our journey with him, we're, you know, the sky might have been the limit. And we're going to go to Kentucky last year. He was going to run in. I think it was called the old Forester that they changed the name to on Kentucky Derby Day. And the whole family's excited and we're, you know, we, we buy the tickets and we're getting ready to go. And then, you know, when you get a phone call from your trainer at five o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. it's never, it's never a good sign. Mm -hmm. So got a call from Danny who said hug worked out, came back bad. And I didn't know what that meant because I was driving back home to Pennsylvania and I had to pull off to the side of the road and said that, he worked out and then on the way back to the barn, he took a bad step where we thought we were going to lose him. We thought we were going to have to put him down. Uh, his leg, uh, his back uh, right leg was pretty much 
exploded, if you will, uh, sesamoids and ligaments and tendons from a bad step. And, and um, they were able to, and I'm getting emotional now as I'm thinking about it, they were able to stabilize him a little bit and get him up to Patty Hogan here in New Jersey, who does an absolutely unbelievable, mm-hmm. phenomenal job with horses. And uh, Patty had him for about seven months and, and put this apparatus on him that I just looked at it and I felt the pain. It was, it was something that was from his knee down to the floor. It looked like a golf putter. Um, and it was just heartbreaking to see it because he was a horse who gave everything that he could and here he couldn't even walk. And Patty was able to save his life and uh, nurse him back to, to health. And, you know, six, seven months, eight months later, uh, you know, and I used to go see him here too, like once every couple of weeks. And he started to, to, to run around in the pen and then start really getting crazy out there. And, and I felt so happy that he, he was a horse again. And, and, and who knew what the next stage of his life was going to be, but I was happy mm-hmm. that we were going to save him. And I said, shoot, I don't care if I have to bring him home and put him in my backyard and tie him to a fence. <laughs> I wasn't going to let anybody hurt this horse. And, and for, for all the good that he did for us and our family, He's our family horse, and I would never, ever, ever put him in a situation to hurt him. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky enough to to get a call from from Mill Creek, um, and um, and we spoke to them and said that we'd be real interested in in seeing if you know you want to have Venezuelan hug stand as a stallion here up here in New York. And obviously, he's a Florida bred, and and I said, well, gee, I had no idea. I wasn't even thinking about this occasion about what his next step in life would be mm-hmm. was about saving his life first. And, and I said, wow, if we can have him stand in New York, and New York is, is our home here, our second home here, if you will, growing up in New York. And I said, yeah, that'd be an interesting thing, but I didn't know what to do or where to start or where to go. And uh, meeting everyone with him and, and just setting him up there and, and seeing how happy he is now. It's, it's been such a blessing that we were able to save his life and able to get him a new life. And, and, and that's where we are now. And it's, he's, he's covered now 22 mares so far this season. Um, five of them are mine. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I already have my, my daughter picked out the first name already for, for the baby, whoever it's going to be, it's going to be Kentucky hug. Um, and that's you know male or female. That's the name. And it, it's just been a blessing. He's been a horse that, and I can't say enough how one horse can change somebody's life. And, and this was the horse that really changed our family's life because he's been a godsend to us. How special is that, that you'll be able to at one point, you know, hopefully raise his offspring with a horse that, like you said, had given you so much on the track now standing in New York and being able to carry that legacy because that really is so special within the sport of horse racing to see them go to the breeding shed and see what kind of traits, as you said, that heart, that determination that they may pass on. It would be fantastic to have one. First of all, if anyone has not seen him, just Google him. He is an absolutely gorgeous specimen to look at. Uh, a beautiful 17 hands gray. And if he can pass on that tenacity and that heart to one of these offspring, it would be fantastic. And yeah, to have a baby with him, to have one, it's again, success is, is, is again, is an afterthought. To have one that's, that's from him, you know, would, would say a lot. And again, I go all the way back to my dad. Again, it's about legacy. You know, you raise your families and hopefully to be better than you ever could be. And, you know, having this ability with him 
to try to pass on that to his offspring would be the, the best blessing I could ever give to him. So it's it's really been an unbelievable ride. You mentioned New York being your second home and standing in New York. It's been so exciting to see that New York breeding program grow as it is, the incentives offered, um, everything that goes along with bringing a stallion to the state of New York. How, how special is that for you and being able to support a racing circuit that you race on as well and, and a place that is your second home? Sure. I mean, New York, Saratoga is probably my favorite track in the country, mm -hmm. followed by Gulfstream. And, and, you know, stallion awards are fantastic. I mean, you get paid you know, to the owners of these registered, you know, New York breads at the time at conception, it's like 10% of the purse money. Um, you know, they, if their offspring comes in first to third and, and that's just an added bonus of having it there. Um, you know, having the mayors too is a double win for me that, you know, if the mayor, you know, is, is out of the breeders awards, you get, you know, 30% of, of the purse that they win. And so the, the incentives that they give to, you know, to breeders and, and stallions is really a great thing to be in. And I was raised in New York and New York is where I want to be. And, and, you know, that New York program is taking off and there's a lot of quality New York breads out there of which hopefully we have one or two, but the program was second to none. So there was no doubt when I had the choice of that as my own hug, it was going to be New York. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned being able to have the mayors too. Um, I know that you've had a lot of success racing horses and then now you're deciding to keep some of those mares and to breed them as well. That's another step as you've just continued to take more and more steps into this industry and a lot of hurdles that come along with it as well. Tell me a little bit the decision about the mares that you're going to keep to breed, what you've learned in, in choosing where to send them, what stallions to breed them to and all of that that goes into it. Yeah, as I said, my biggest fault is that I fall in love with every one of them. Mm -hmm. And and I just would hate to give them up. And so, um, you know, I have a few mares that, um, you know, not not the greatest racehorses out there. And as opposed to be putting these horses in a, in a spot where I could lose them for a really minimal claiming price, I'd rather take them out of racing and, and give them to hug because he's my only stallion now. And, and uh, again, it's about not wanting to give up a racehorse because they're, you know, they're not the fastest or, or best thing out there. So, you know, to me, keeping them, having Hug as a stallion now, there's, there's no doubt that any one of my mares, if the decision is put them in a lower claiming race because they're not that quality, I'd rather take them out of racing and give them a great home up on the farm and, and, and give them the opportunity to, to breed the Hug and and it's, it's about, again, doing the right thing for horses. And I think a lot of people sometimes don't do that in this business, but you know, I'll be damned if I'm gonna go that road is to mm -hmm. give away a horse that I can keep to give to him. Um, as I said, he deserves it. As I said, now he owes back. I have to get him now in case you're a smoking jacket, cigar <laughs> cigarettes, he's living, he's living the life now. So I gotta make sure I keep taking care of him as best I can, because as I said, <laughs> He took care of me and gave me the most unbelievable experiences that anyone could have in this game. And, and I'll do whatever I can, you know, to try to give him a chance to be a stallion that people would want to breed to. I love the love that you have for the horses um, in, uh, in, in your stable. And, and that is really the toughest part, too. You know, whether they're good on the racetrack or not, they all have their personalities. There's mm -hmm. there's something special about each of them and me being involved in retraining them after the track you get to see that and, and there are so many instances too where maybe they're not the best racehorse but there's always something about these thoroughbreds that really captures you 
Sure. And you, you know, you, your mom and his kudos to your mom doing a great job, you know, with her aftercare program. And, and again, it's about the love of, of the horse. And, and I tell everybody, I'd rather spend a day at the barn than a day at the races, mm -hmm. because I could go up and down the shed row and, and peppermints and carrots and all day long. And, and just, as you said, they're all like kids, they have different personalities. And, you know, it, it's, it's just something that I love to do. And, and I'm glad Miriam is with me there, loving to do this as well. And and I, I can never put one of my horses in a situation that is going to be is going to be detrimental to them. And I'd rather have them in, you know, up at the farm, you know, with hug, depending, you know, whatever the situation is. And and it is it is the love of the horse, and I've always had that. And and these last three years for me and my family have been unbelievable. And you get to meet great people. As I said, you know, you and Miguel are awesome and, and all of the, the folks on this end of the game, yeah. you would never think how nice these people really are. And it, it's really been an unbelievable experience for us. And, and, and you just shake your head at it sometimes and say, you know, win or lose, you make a lot of friends and you make people a lot of friends for life here. And half of these people give you the shirts off their back to help you. And that's how they are. And I always will have the love of the horse you know, it's great to win. We all love to win. We know that. But it's about having the ability to care for something, you know, from beginning to end. And now with having the ability with Venezuelan Hugs babies to see them from step one forward is going to be an unbelievable experience. I'm not a grandpa yet in real life, but I'm a grandpa. <laughs> I feel like with, with horses that are going to be coming. So um, that, that, it's, been a, it's been a great run. Well, we cannot wait to see them on the racetrack, Sal. Uh, you've just made me smile ear to ear throughout this whole interview, too. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. And uh, we can't wait to follow Venezuelan Hug and his offspring on the racetrack. My pleasure. And hopefully this helps everyone realize that, you know, win or lose, take care of your horses because mm -hmm. they give their heart and soul a thousand percent every time that they run for you. So God bless everybody. And uh, let's, let's all get to the next step happy and healthy. And with that, we wrap up another episode of In the Ring. Very grateful to my guests today, Steve Dunker and Sal Spadale, two very interesting individuals who care so much about their their horses, of course, and about the game of horse racing as well. So hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. As always, don't forget to go to In The Money Media and sign up for the newsletter, especially now leading into the Kentucky Derby. We have the In The Money Media Monster Pod out. Um, I participated as well, talking about simplification, uh, who I saw several times down at Gulfstream throughout this winter and is on the road to the Kentucky Derby. If you missed it, I did an episode before the Florida Derby on Simplification's owner, Tammy Bobo. There is some sound from his trainer, Antonio Sano, in there as well. Of course, Simplification winner of the Fountain of Youth this winter and um, coming off of a really, really strong workout too. So you can check my episode out on the Monster Pod on that topic, but make sure to check out all of the content within the money leading into the Kentucky Derby and all of the great content from my other colleagues on there as well under that umbrella. As always, please feel, feel free to share this episode. If there's anything you're interested in, send me some ideas, um, but certainly I will have a lot to discuss over the next month or so. Until then, I'll see you next time on In the Ring.